It is one of those topics where it is easy to just go out on the street, ask people if they want it, and you hear a resounding yes. Talking about ride hailing and the long wait for ride hailing in this province. Will we learn more about it tomorrow? Well, Mike Smith from the province joins me on the line now. And Mike, it looks like we might learn a bit more about the legislation tomorrow. Yeah, hi. Good morning, Jill. Um, It appears... Well, certainly we're going to get some sort of legislation this week from the uh, John Horgan government on ride-hailing. It could be as early as tomorrow. I spoke to some people in the ride-hailing industry uh, yesterday who said that they had been hearing about a Monday announcement, although significantly there's no news advisory has been issued by the government uh, yet. And on an announcement this big, they, they typically give more notice to the news media. So maybe it's tomorrow, Jill, or maybe it's later in the week, but certainly something is coming this week. And uh, John Horgan, the Premier, also had said earlier that uh, he believes it will be passed because there's so much support, but we don't have a lot of time left in the session. Yeah, there's only two weeks left in this uh, legislative session, so we'll have to look very closely at the details of this bill, or it could be more than one bill. There will also be some regulations, and the government has said that this province is finally going to get ride-sharing at some point. This has been going on for six years, though, so, you know, we've been talking about this since 2012, and... There's a lot of concern in the industry that whatever the government rolls out this week uh, could be potentially very restrictive and make it and make it continue uh, continue to be difficult for Uber and Lyft and these other companies to operate. There's some concern about how the insurance is going to work. And, you know, the government has talked about how how difficult it is to insure these companies, and you know, so you're already hearing some excuses from government about more delays. So that has industry insiders a little worried about what's coming tomorrow. The devil will be in the details, as they say. So we'll have to look very closely at what the government brings out here this week. Let's uh, talk a bit more about the insurance issue, because this is one as well that it's not as though we just found out that ride hailing is wanted in BC and under a liberal government as well. They were studying this. They were looking at this. So surely someone at ICBC, they're not waiting for the legislation to then make this insurance model. Uh, I mean, is it too much of a leap to, to assume that at ICBC they've actually been working on this? Uh, No, ICBC has been well aware of this issue and is a priority and they have been working on it. But there there was a comment from Claire Trevena, the transportation minister, that it's been difficult to do and it could take it could take a a delay in order to in order to develop an insurance product for this industry. But, you know, to me, that's just more delay tactics from a government and a political party that have been beholden to a very powerful taxi industry that doesn't want competition from uh, ride hailing. Uh, the Liberals before the NDP were no better. You know, they, they caved into the taxi industry too. So personally, I think both these parties should hang their heads in shame uh, that British Columbians have still been denied these services. On the insurance model, I mean, look, this is not rocket science. It, 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 this industry is operating in every other major city in North America. So the way, the kind of insurance model that Uber and Lyft and these other companies want is they want a per-kilometer pay-as-you-drive insurance model for ride-hailing drivers. And the way it would work is Uber would pay the insurance for the drivers. And if you are an Uber driver and you set your own hours, when you want to work, you click the on-call button in, on your smartphone, and then you're, you're on the system and you're eligible to accept passengers. 
then your insurance would kick in. And when you go off duty, the insurance would stop and you would, and the driver would revert back to their own personal insurance for their personal vehicle. This is, this is the insurance model that Uber and Lyft wants. It works well in many other jurisdictions. So there is some concern that the government is saying, like, ooh, maybe this could be difficult to do. And, and are they using the excuse that because we have a, a, a public insurance that that's what's making it difficult here? Um, I don't think they haven't been too detailed about why it would be difficult to achieve this. But I'll, I'll tell you what, I've already heard from the private insurance sector saying, if ICBC doesn't want to insure this industry, let us insure them. The, the Insurance Bureau of Canada has already said, we can do this. We can, <laughs> we can insure ride-hailing companies, no problem. Let us do it in British Columbia if, if ICBC can't do it. So we'll see. I mean, maybe we'll get a surprise this week and they'll roll it out and say, oh, it's all good and we're going to start ride-hailing immediately and the insurance is no problem. But there are some <laughs> troubling, troubling signs against there. <laughs> Did a unicorn just fly in front of you when you said that? I know. Isn't it brutal? I mean, it's unbelievable that we've been talking about this stuff for so long. Some of the other things that this industry is worried about are potential for uh, caps and boundaries, as they're called. So could the government place a very strict limit on the number of uh, drivers that would be allowed to accept passengers? In most other cities, there's no limit. If you want to, if you want to be an Uber driver, you just, if you pass the criminal, uh, criminal background check, you can be an Uber driver. The government here has hinted about putting a cap on the number of drivers it would be allowed to operate. Um, could there be operational boundaries? Like right now, one of the big problems in the taxi industry is they don't cross municipal boundaries. You're not allowed to pick up a passenger in another municipality. Could the government bring in similar rules for ride sharing, which I think would be very difficult to enforce? And some speculation and fear of that. If you ask the taxi industry about that one particular rule right now, they won't say this on the record, but they say we don't follow that rule. We we give that one a pass. We don't go after any cabs that pick up people. I've had cabs pick me up when you can get them in Vancouver from other municipalities. No one is following that rule because it's such chaos trying to get a ride anywhere anyway. Well, it's it's um, yeah, and and so the, the difficulty is how would it be something like that be enforced? And so it's just another one where the government has said, well, this could be a difficult thing to achieve. And another one is what kind of driver's license would you require to be an Uber driver? So right now, Uber and Lyft, they want uh, they want ride-hailing drivers to use their own vehicles using a standard Class Five BC driver's license, which is the standard license you have to drive a car. Could the government insist, oh, no, we're not going to allow that. We're going to make you get a Class 4 commercial license, the same as a taxi driver, that requires a special road test, a medical exam, vehicle inspection, etc. So there are lots of different ways the government could gum up the works here and make this a very restrictive industry and make it can continue to make it difficult for the industry to operate. So that's why the industry is sitting on pins and needles right now today, wondering what's coming. How, how realistic do you think it is that they might make drivers get a class four license? Because that seems, I mean, in other jurisdictions, I don't think you have to get a whole different driver's license. It, it, um, it varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. There, there are other cities in Canada that have required a special license, but there are many others in Canada and around the world that have said, no, you don't need a special licenses. As long as you are a licensed, a legally licensed driver and you have a clean driver's record and you pass a criminal background check and you have a safe vehicle, you can be an Uber driver. You don't need to be, you don't have to have, to have a special commercial driver's license to do it. 
So it varies from city to city, but the simplest way to do it would be to just say, if you have a, if you have a standard driver's license, you can drive in this industry if you qualify. So the, that's what, that's the pitch and that the industry has lobbied the government for. And whether the government's going to do it or not, there's a lot of concern that they won't let them do that. We'll see. Uh, and uh, are you getting a sense? Uh, it does seem, I mean, because we've been told time and time again, it's complicated. We need a yeah. made in BC solution. We can't just follow the model that works everywhere else in the world. Uh, do you get a sense that the, there will be, this isn't going to be just everything handed out tomorrow. Yes, we figured it out. Let's go. Uh, do, you, do you get a sense that it is going to be complicated? And like you said, the devil will be in the details. Yeah, my concern is that there will be more delays and that, there, and that they will bring in a very restrictive uh, regulatory system here. That's the concern of the industry, and that's certainly the concern that I have. I've been following this issue for a long time, that we've been talking about this for six years, and it's been nothing but delay after delay after delay by the Liberals before the NDP and, and by this government as well. Because if you go back to the election last year, John Horgan said that uh, ride hailing would be allowed in British Columbia in 2017. It did not happen. Then he said, wait till 2018. It has not happened. Then he said it'll be the fall of 2019. Now we're hearing hints that, oh, it could be so difficult. Maybe it'll last even longer. You know, I mean, it's just been delay after delay. And I think it's because the, the, the taxi monopoly in the taxi industry in B.C. is very politically powerful um, lobby. And uh, the government has been very obedient to them. So my, my concern is that it will continue, even, even though the government's going to say, here, we've, di- we've done it, we've delivered it, it's going to happen. You know, they've been saying that for years and it hasn't happened. So we'll see if this, we'll see if this week is any different. <laughs> Indeed. Do, yeah. do they not lose some of the power, though? Because I think that's what's frustrating to people <clears throat> as well, that we know the taxi industry is extremely powerful. It has a lot of political sway. But when right. all three parties, when the NDP, the Liberals and the Greens all say we want this, we support this, do they not lose some of that power? Um, they, they all say they support it, but then they qualify it. Like, I, I talked to Andrew Wilkinson the other day, the liberal leader, and I said, what do you want to see from this? And he goes, well, you know, it's time to get on, for, get on with this. Why are we delaying? It kind of makes you almost lose your lunch to hear, hear him say that because, you know, the, these guys were in power for 16 years, and, and they didn't do it either. So now, there's, now the liberals are saying, oh, let's get on with it. Let's get going. And then, but then if you try to pin down Wilkinson and some of the specifics, like if you ask him, do you think uh, there should be limits on the number of drivers that are allowed to accept passengers? Uh, do you think Uber drivers should be allowed to cross over municipal boundaries to pick up passengers? Then he starts hedging his answers and starts saying, well, you know, we've got to be careful. We don't hurt the taxi industry too bad. You know, it's like both parties kind of talk out of both sides of their mouth about, uh, yeah, we want to deliver these services to the people of BC. They want this. It's, it's clear the public wants this. But on the other hand, we've got to be careful that we, we don't hurt the taxi industry. And it has to be the so-called level playing field that they talk about, which is a difficult thing to achieve because they're two very different business models. So I think uh, the, the only party that really has clean hands on this thing, I think, is Andrew Weaver and the Green Party, who've been saying all along, let's just do this without any special deals for the taxi business. All right. So maybe tomorrow, but definitely maybe. this week. It's, Horgan <laughs> said the other day it's definitely coming this week. Um, there is some hints about tomorrow, but maybe it'll be later in the week. All right. We will stay tuned. Mike, thank okay. you so much. You bet. Well, if you've already voted in the referendum on electoral reform, you are part of the about 18% of the eligible voters in this province who have. And in about an hour from now, we will open up the phone lines and would love to hear from you on why it was important to take part in the referendum 
and why it was important for you to vote. You don't have to tell us how you voted, but if you want to, by all means, you can. Uh, there are certainly a lot of conversations still about this, about the ballot, whether or not uh, if you're voting for first past the post, you should also vote for the second question. Uh, my advice would be no. If you're only voting, if you're voting for first past the post, the phrase that we've been hearing out there is one and done. Uh, but there is certainly a difference of opinions on that. A bit later on in the program, we are going to talk with a political science professor at UBC about this. But first, right now, we are joined by by uh, Sam Sullivan, who is the MLA for Vancouver False Creek. Uh, Sam Sullivan, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, you've been uh, very vocal about this and talking about uh, the referendum and putting out a video uh, that uh, makes a, an analogy to uh, being in a restaurant and making choices. Uh, maybe walk us through, if you could, uh, your thoughts on, on how things have unfolded so far. Okay, so I am a proponent of voter-based systems. I believe that voters should vote directly for all their MLAs, and I'm against party-based systems. So anything where the party actually gets involved and chooses the MLAs for you. So there are several types of voter-based systems. One of them is first-past-the-post. We have the system we have, we all vote directly for the MLAs. Another version, which is a proportional system, is um, single transferable vote. Very good system, STV. This is the system that the Citizens' Assembly decided to support. Remember the 160 randomly chosen voters, and they all chose STV. And they actually rejected all of the party-based systems. So what do we get with this referendum? We get all these three party-based systems, and we don't get the voter-based systems. So the only way you can vote for a voter-based system on this referendum, if you want voters to choose all the MLAs, is to vote for first-past-the-post. I think it's a really bad referendum. Unfortunately, the parties got involved. And remember, it was a citizen assembly, voters that rep- you know, recommended uh, STV to voters. This is political parties. This is politicians who have recommended these three systems. And guess what? They, they recommended systems that are good for parties. Now, I like parties. Parties are important, but uh, they're, they're strong enough. I think they have enough role in, in our legislature not to give them 40% of the choices. You know, what they're, what they're, the, the system that would win, remember, there's three systems. Two of them are kind of throwaway systems that have never been tried. They're, they're very reckless. One of the government's own experts said that it's reckless to put these systems on. The real system they want is MMP. And MMP is where the parties get to choose 40% of all the MLAs. So you, you get to choose 60% and then parties choose. Now, the premier is saying, no, it'll be more citizen-oriented by, you know, uh, having the list opened up. But there are many different ways to create these lists, and and no matter what's going to happen, the party's going to order the list. So they're going to hint very strongly at who they think uh, should be the MLAs, the the 40% of those MLAs. And they keep keep, uh, talking about New Zealand. New Zealand is the model that they want to use because they use that MMP system. Well, what happens in, in an MMP system is that if the, if the MLA decides to leave the party and they're on a list, they, they don't just sit as an independent like we would here. They sit, they actually have to leave the legislature. They actually leave their job. They lose their job, sit out and go uh, back to whatever they were doing. And the party gets to reappoint an MLA. 
Now, the other thing that goes on in New Zealand is if you can't get elected in your own riding, but your, your party still gets enough of the vote, you still get to be in the, in the, in the legislature. Because if you get yourself onto the party list, it doesn't matter if the citizens vote against you, you still get to come on through the party list. And that's actually happened in New Zealand. Right now, the deputy prime minister lost his own seat, but because his party got 7% of the vote, remember this is an anti-immigrant party with some really nasty uh, ideas, uh, because he held the balance of power, uh, the parties needed him, and he got to choose who was going to be the, the prime minister. So this kind of system uh, we're recommending as an improvement? I don't think so. Uh, what do you say, though, to people, and there, there is a bit of pushback to the, the extremist argument that it's not PR that lets extremists and such into the government. It's the fact that people vote for them. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, if you can imagine that, that in British Columbia, we have 5% of people that have some pretty nasty views. Okay, so are you, you know, you're saying that that's okay then to have 5% of your uh, MLAs with that kind of viewpoint? Now, the thing about first past the point is you have to get to a higher level to actually get elected. And that's why, you know, it's one of the, the, the voter base system is the right way to go. Now, STV, I believe, is a good system. It's a proportional system, and the Citizens' Assembly did a very good job in determining that it actually has a moderating influence because if you vote for an extremist party, you would put them as number one, but then your number two vote would have to be someone less extremist. So you'd end up, you know, through voting as as a, you know, in ranking, you actually would tend toward more moderate systems. And the Citizen Assembly took 11 months to figure this out. Now, they're wanting us uh, citizens to figure it out by, with an eight-page brochure. Uh, you know, it's just wrong the way this whole process has happened. It's been completely rushed. Uh, people are confused. I mean, I, I had trouble looking through this ballot and wondering if I didn't actually know a bit more about this, I would be very confused about this whole thing. And so I've, I put a video out saying, it's like asking at a restaurant, do you want chicken or fish? And you say, well, I want fish, you know. So imagine chicken is the system that we have and fish is these other systems. Well, and they said, okay, do you want goldfish or dogfish or boxfish? And you say, I don't want either of those systems. I love fish, but I don't like those fish. Well, you've just said you like fish. So which one, what is it going to be? Is it going to be a goldfish dogfish or boxfish and and now if they had said salmon tuna or goldfish well hold on a sec i like salmon and tuna but i don't like goldfish no if you say fish you don't know which fish you're going to get because if you say fish any of those three could end up on your plate so really the only proper way to do this is if you don't like goldfish but you like salmon and tuna, then you have to vote against all the fish because you don't know which one will end up on your plate. So the government pretty well says that all proportional systems are the same. Don't worry. You know, it's kind of like steamed or baked or or fried. You know, it's all the same. Well, no, there are very different types of proportional systems. And some of them are pretty nasty and they allow some pretty awful things to happen. 
So it's it's a it's a it's a real farce, and uh, I think it's not really a referendum. This should be called a coup. This is a coup. If if they win this, the parties will get far more power than we've ever seen before, and uh, I don't think that's good for the for the, pro- the province of British Columbia. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there, and uh, we are going to continue talking about this on the program. Uh, but Sam Sullivan, I appreciate so much your time this morning and coming on the program uh, to talk to us. I'm sure we will talk to you about this again. But thank you again so much. Thanks a lot. Okay. Well, the headline was coming to a neighborhood near you duplexes. That is not necessarily the case now that the new city council in Vancouver has decided to roll back that recent zoning change to allow duplexes, saying that there needs to be a more consultation. There needs to be more work done before this can go ahead. Joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this decision and what it means is Tom Davidoff, a professor at the UBC Souter School of Business. Professor, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Jill. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, what are your thoughts about, well, first, the fact that this, this did go ahead, it was approved, and now the new council has said, no, we're not, uh, we're not going to go full steam ahead on this just yet. Yeah, I thought uh, when duplex passed, it was a, a really terrific. Look, it's not enough. Uh, duplexes are affordable to upper-middle-class households in a way single-family homes are not. Uh, they're a great product, and there's just not enough of them. There's something like maybe 100 and 120 for sale in the city of Vancouver, and there's so many people looking for that so-called missing middle, you know, enough room for a family-type housing, but, but not buying a whole lot of land uh, which people can't afford. So it's a great product. You know, we should have more. We should have townhomes uh, and apartments in what are now single-family zones, but it was a re- reasonable step. And for the new council to grab that away is bad, not only because it eliminates a a useful product, but as they go into this new city planning process, uh, single family neighborhoods, if if the residents there now say, oh, we'll accept duplex, that'll be the compromise. There won't, you know, after a four year process, we'll be back where we started from instead of something more reasonable, uh, like townhomes. And as I say, uh, small apartment buildings. Is, is the issue around this as well? Is it that uh, a single-family neighborhood, if you suddenly allow duplexes, is it the issue of parking, of, of the density, or what is it that you see uh, being the pushback? Uh, I, I think people don't want to share their neighborhood with more people. And, you know, parking, I mean, g- give me a break. We have a housing crisis. We don't have a housing for cars crisis. Uh, in a lot of the neighborhoods in Vancouver, uh, where you're paying, you know, $4 million for a single-family home, potentially, parking's free. I mean, that's, it, it, to, to think that we need to worry about street parking is just laughable, and I, I don't think anybody takes that seriously. I think this is just uh, very powerful neighborhood groups want the status quo, and unfortunately, uh, a lot of council, I think, you know, just in the, in the constellation of who voted where, uh, feels like they owe those groups. When we talk about it, and you mentioned that that this is the the duplex is kind of the the new version of what uh, the upper middle class family can afford. But duplexes, I mean, even if we look at today's rates, today's prices, they're they're an expensive piece of property. I mean, if you're looking at a duplex on the west side, even you know the city hall area, you're looking at they're more than a million dollars. They're they're an expensive thing to purchase. I completely agree, and there's two reasons for that. One is it's not enough density. You've got to go to you know multiple townhomes on those same plots of unbelievably expensive land. Uh, but number two, there just are so few of them. There's about 110 right now, 
if you were building, uh, you know, a few hundred of these a year, uh, and every time a single family was torn down, instead of building single family, you built duplex, you know, you can increase by a factor of five the number of these things on the market. And you have to think when you multiply, you know, go from 100 to 500 on the market, that's going to have an impact on price. So do you think it would actually, if they went ahead with a plan like this, it would actually bring the price down? Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, uh, more of anything means a lower price. How much lower? That's a hard question to answer. Uh, But yeah, you know, now what some people say as well, it raises land prices. Uh, but that's not what's relevant. You know, the, the cost of single-family homes going up just enriches the single-family homeowner, which is great. And if you build two afford- somewhat more affordable duplexes instead of a totally unaffordable single-family home, uh, of course, that's better, too. So it's win-win. And I'm sure somebody has crunched these numbers, uh, but I, I would imagine you would have to. And that's why the plan, I think, was was to go to so many different neighborhoods, because to, to actually get to that point where the price would come down, where it would be, become affordable for people, even people making good money, you would have to turn a lot of single family homes into duplexes and triplexes. Yeah, you know, uh, we have a lot of uh, <laughs> room to go uh, in terms of making Vancouver affordable. But, you know, the other reason I think it was important to go in every neighborhood uh, to go back to the planning process was to totally take away any idea in Vancouver's planning documents that there's an objective of keeping neighborhoods single family. That's got to go. It should have gone 50 or 75 years ago. Uh, but the idea that the government requires uh, people to live with only one owner on, uh, you know, 4,000 square foot lots. I think just uh, as a symbol, uh, extending that to every neighborhood was quite important. And what do you say then to, to people, the, the argument that, that there are there is still a need for single family homes in some cases? There are still people who want to live in single family homes who can do that and that there should be a mix. Yes, bring on duplexes, triplexes, row homes, what have you. But 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 this war on the single family house. <laughs> yeah, that that's a good one. Look, nobody's banning single family homes. If you can pay more on an open market for a single family home. Uh, than a duplex, somebody's going to build you a single-family home. If you want to buy a single-family home and compete against people who might convert it to duplex, go for it. Uh, Nobody's banning that. Uh, But let the market decide what people are going to buy. What's funny is this kind of strict zoning is saying we're going to protect the people who can afford single-family homes from competing with everybody else. That is the very definition of socialism for the rich. It does seem like if you just threw it out there, get rid of the zoning, like you said, let the market decide who wants to build what, who wants to live in what. Maybe maybe if council just took their hands off of it, you could see uh, let things fall where they do. Well, I don't think we should go quite there uh, for free, because right now uh, the city of Vancouver has this crazy restrictive zoning, but... A, if you got rid of it all at once, the whole city would turn into a construction zone. Two, the zoning is worth probably hundreds of billions of dollars over coming decades, right? Developers would be, they'd pay a fortune for the right to bust zoning and go to, say, a 50-story apartment building, which is what they do with no zoning. So I think in the city planning process, they should say, what are we going to allow? We'll go from duplex to townhome on quiet streets. Uh, on uh, on certain streets in certain areas, we'll go to tall towers. 
and we're going to sell off the right to build it, you know, 500 bucks a square foot, the city would make an absolute fortune. And any work in terms of affordability that building more market homes doesn't do, when the city sells that zoning, the cash can be used to help lower income families who, even when we build more, are not going to be able to afford uh, prime places in Vancouver without support. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. We're out of time, but uh, we'll see what happens next uh, with this issue and uh, what council does next. I'm sure we'll talk to you about it again. Uh, Professor Davidoff, thank you so much. Good to chat with you this morning. Thank you very much for the chance. We are talking about the ongoing referendum on electoral reform in this province. And coming up after the news to the bottom of the hour, we will open up the phone lines. But first, let's bring on Max Cameron. He is a director at the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions at the Department of Political Science at UBC. Uh, Max Cameron, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, what is your take so far? Because there seem to be two different conversations. There's one about what the question is, what we're being asked to decide in the province of British Columbia when it comes to electoral reform, keep the current system or change it. Then there's another conversation on the process itself of the referendum. Are you concerned that the two are, are perhaps muddying each other? Well, I've certainly noticed that over the last little while there's been more talk about the process itself and a lot of criticisms uh, of it, you know, and I think some of the criticisms are are, are warranted. There's certainly, um, we've moved quickly into a referendum, and, and uh, I think it would have been useful to have had a broader and deeper process of public consultation, and one of the things that might have done is dispel some of the confusion around the different systems that we uh, face uh, on the ballot. Uh, and what do you think is the biggest point of confusion out there? I think a lot of people are really earnestly trying to figure out what these different systems would look like, uh, and they want to make a, a, a wise decision. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, speaking on this over the last uh, few weeks, and uh, I find uh, rooms full of people who really are trying to understand these systems uh, and, and work through what the differences are. Um, you know, I, I think that the, you know, the principle of proportional representation is a pretty straightforward one, and most people uh, get that. Uh, the real issue is which of these three systems do we really think would be best? And is that even made more difficult in the fact that two of them aren't, we can't look anywhere to see how two of them might operate because they're not in use? Yeah, I think the fact that two, two of them um, haven't been tested, at least in their current form, in the case of rural-urban uh, it's a mix of two familiar systems, but it's a peculiar new mix of them. And uh, dual member proportional is a brand new system. Uh, you know, these are systems that were chosen uh, by the Attorney General's office, I think, as a result of uh, advice from experts that said, you know, these really are systems that do an incredibly good job of combining what we want from the current system, which uh, is a good local representation. Uh, while at the same time getting a, a better kind of proportionality in terms of the distribution of seats in the legislature. So why don't we go with some systems, not with the off-the-shelf variety, but of these new ones that have been created to address the kind of concerns that we have in places like Canada where we want you know, to find that sort of balance. Uh, the downside of, of having then listened to experts <laughs> is you have to explain that to the public. And uh, the public, uh, I think, is, is working hard to, 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 to understand this, but, it's, it's, uh, but it does take an effort to sit down. I think, you know, read the voter's guide. Um, there are a lot of resources online. Uh, Elections BC, I think, has done a superb job of providing uh, material. I think the media has done a great job of providing a 
explainers, uh, and uh, uh, and of course we've had a pretty lively debate between the yes and the no side. So you know, I, I think over time the, the the confusion is dispelling, and people are are coming to judgment. We've seen a big uptick in the number of ballots coming in, uh, so I think we're getting there, but. Uh, but I think there's uh, still a ways to go. Uh, do you think that it is a big factor in how people are looking at this and, and perhaps choosing to vote? When we look at other countries in the world, if you look at, say, the example of Germany, where the alternative for Germany party, which is a far-right party, seems to be gaining in uh, popularity and seems to be having more power probably than people thought they would have in the past. Is there that fear that these fringe parties that under a first-past-the-post system wouldn't get any power, certainly wouldn't get the balance of power, are given more power under one of these systems? I think that fear is definitely out there. And, and any time you hold a referendum, you, you, you hold it in a context that you don't kind of control. And uh, the mood globally is one of concern about the state of democracy, the rise of extremism, uh, the uh, growth of, of populism. Now, it's, we're not seeing that only in PR systems. On the contrary, uh, we're seeing... Uh, those tendencies with uh, UKIP and Brexit in the UK, we've seen Donald Trump in the United States, uh, we've seen Modi in in, uh, in India. Um, so by no means are these t- trends limited to PR countries. In fact, PR countries are historically extremely stable. Uh, I think you've you put your finger on it, though. The, the question is, would an electoral system make it easier for uh, those sorts of parties to gain the balance of power. Now, I think in the case of BC, um, I, I don't see us as uh, facing uh, a Nazi problem or the rise of uh, anti-system parties of that sort. What I think is really driving uh, the conversation here is, on the one hand, the Greens understand that it is unequivocally in their interest uh, to, to have proportional representation. They got 17% of the vote in the last election and only three out of 87 seats. I think that there's uh, the NDP has kind of made its peace with this idea that in the long term this could be good for them. Um, and it's really the liberals that are considering this as an existential threat. And I think that because the Liberal Party is, in some sense, a coalition party, um, they, they may be concerned that either there will be a loss of support uh, or, or that the Conservatives will gain ground. Uh, and that, I think, is partly what's motivating uh, their very strenuous opposition to this. Is there a concern, though, that and what I'm hearing from people is this this cynical, uh, this the cynicism of the parties have chosen these systems because it benefits the parties? Yeah, I think uh, that is an interesting observation. And, and, you know, I think that, uh, you know, if you look at some of the systems like uh, rural urban PR, which has a single transferable vote in the urban areas, that's clearly a system that gives voters more choice, not less choice. There is a variation of mixed-member proportional, um, which would give voters more choice. That is the one with open lists, not less choice. Um, Dual-member proportional is exactly the same as ours in terms of the way in which parties um, present, choose and present candidates. So uh, I, you know, I resist that a little bit. I think, uh, and I think it's ironic that you often hear that objection coming precisely from party insiders. Um, I, 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 I'm not, you know, it, it puzzles me a bit. I, I don't think that there's a lot of truth to it, um, but there, there's, it does seem to get some traction when people, people say, well, you know, the parties construct lists, and you know, those lists are going to be composed of party insiders. I guess the thing that I urge people to remember is 
Right, but I guess, I guess what people are bristling at sometimes in that is that even though with an open list, that list is still chosen by the party. And in, in first past the post, you still vote for that person. You can vote for or against them, whereas the list is then, I think it's the idea, isn't it, of, of a party choosing somebody, not the voters choosing them. Yeah, so, you know, in MMP, which is where, you know, we would, might have open lists uh, or closed lists, there you, you've actually got two votes, and that's, the, that's where there's a little bit more choice. That you, you'd vote for your local candidate, and there you're voting for candidate, just as in the first-past-the-post system. But you're right, for the groupings of regional candidates, you would pick a list. And yes, indeed, the parties construct those lists. Uh, and they, now there are a number of ways that they could do that, and the parties would have to figure that out. One way of doing it would be to have internal democratic elections. Another way would be that the party itself constructs that list in order to uh, maximize some uh, set of goals that they have set for themselves. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. I know we could talk for a full hour about this, but yeah. we're out of time. Uh, Max Cameron, thank you so much. Always enjoy having you on the show. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it too. So we are going to shift gears and talk a little bit about a show that is coming to the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra. It's the VSO Pops at the Orpheum Theatre. And if you've not been to the Orpheum Theatre, it is a wonderful venue to see the VSO perform. If you have been, you know exactly what I mean. Uh, This coming Friday and Saturday, though, it's going to be a bit of a different show. And if you find, as some people do, that the symphony can be a little stuffy, there's a lot of standing, there's a lot of clapping, there's a lot of the conductor egg exiting the stage, coming back on the stage. I I love going to the symphony. I don't get to go very often, but when I do, I love going. Some people can find that a little stuffy, though. But this coming, this upcoming show, The Hollywood Sings, not stuffy at all. And one of the best parts about it is that it relives Hollywood's glory, past and present. If you like music like Moon River, if you have a, likeness, a liking for the songs from, say, The Wizard of Oz, Uh, more recently, shows like La La Land, those are just a few that will be performed. And coming up in this half hour, we will have time to give one lucky listener a pair of tickets to see the show coming up this weekend. So I'll tell you more about that in a few moments. But first, to learn a little bit more about what's going to be happening at the Vancouver Symphony, uh, we are joined on the line by Michael Krajewski. He is the guest conductor. He will be here this weekend bringing us Hollywood Sings. Uh, Michael Krajewski, thank you so much for being with us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Uh, You are going to be the guest conductor at an upcoming show, Hollywood Sings, at the VSO. Uh, So tell us, what is this all about? Well, I've selected music from movies for this program, but in particular, uh, honed in on familiar songs and great melodies from movies. And it's going to span uh, decades, uh, going all the way back to some very early films and up to, uh, to the present time. It sounds like a, a show like this or a program like this is, is a little bit more laid back than than what people might expect when they go to the symphony. Is that is that a fair comment? Um, yeah, I think that might be one way to describe it. Certainly it's going to be um, filled with lots of familiar music. People will recognize everything on the program. There are lots of selections, lots of variety. Um, it's also, in your words, laid back in the sense that uh, I'll be talking uh, between most of the pieces and just telling the audience a little bit about you know, what they're going to hear next and get them ready for it. So it's a more uh, informal kind of uh, way of presenting a, a symphony concert. 
And, and like you said, it uh, goes way back as far as uh, songs that people will recognize. And that do you do you sense is there is it a better connection or a different connection? I guess with the audience when um, and, and not that you don't often recognize music at the symphony, but but when people are recognizing things that they then make uh, that it, rem- it reminds them of a certain film or a certain scene. Definitely, <clears throat> um, you know they'll they'll of course recognize everything in the program, but they'll also have an association with the movie itself. So it's a kind of program that, you know, you hear these these songs and this music, and hopefully it brings back some nice memories, too, because you, then you recollect the, the setting from of this of this music, you know, you, the, the film from which it came. And so there's, uh, I think, a lot of, you know, nice memories, nice nostalgia involved in experiencing this program. But, you know, I point out that the real, the real, treat and what makes it special is that you know this music but you get to hear it live you know by a, a living and breathing symphony orchestra and musicians on the stage playing this music that you've only heard coming uh you know in the background of the of the films and how does that play out when when uh, with the musicians is it more challenging or is it a different type of challenge when you're playing the music from films I don't think it's more challenging necessarily. I think the musicians enjoy uh, that experience that I just described of uh, playing this music that we've all we've all heard, you know, in the background of the, of the uh, films. But to have a chance for us on stage, for musicians on stage, to actually play this music and you know breathe life into it uh, is, I think, uh, a lot of fun for them. And what can the audience expect then? You, you made a hint to, to uh, some of the songs or songs that go way back. Do you have a favorite or can you give us an idea what some of the songs might be? Well, we're going to start out uh, by going you know, way back into some classic films. Uh, for example, Wizard of Oz, which gave us uh, you know, one very famous song, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. And, so, uh, and we're also actually going to start out with the very first song, that, uh, well, I should say the ver- the very first time that they gave uh, an Oscar out for best song for a movie, that goes way back uh, in, in the 1930s, and that song happened to be called The Continental. So we're going to start at the very, very beginning of, of when they even first first time awarded best song in a movie. And then we're going to come up to present time and, you know, to music from... Uh, from Frozen, so everything in between, and uh, I, it's hard for me to say that I have a favorite in this. To, every time you go from one song to another, you say, "Oh, I love this song. I love that movie." <laughs> Definitely, and, and I guess the beauty of that too is, even if people don't recognize all of the songs, it's going to be a mix then of of being taken back and the nostalgia, and also for some people, or maybe for everybody, there'll be a couple of songs in in the the show where you're kind of left thinking or wondering where it came from. Yeah, that might might, might be the case. Although, as I mentioned, I will be talking, so I will you know that give people a little. Uh, uh, hint on you know what they're going to hear next and, and why it's on the program and what movie it came from, uh, but I think this you know even if people don't recognize everything, I think they they might find some you know some new pieces that they didn't know about and uh, uh, are attracted to and, and enjoy. I think the program's also going to uh, illustrate how skilled the composers of film music are. 
and uh, they have this ability to write music and write songs that you know really uh, uh, capture your imagination and bring you into the uh, music very readily. You know, they they are very good at uh, kind of writing very gripping kind of music and emotional music. And as the, as the conductor, do you prefer being in a doing a show like this where you do have that interaction, or you do have, you are talking to the audience more than than say more a more traditional show? Well, I do these kinds of concerts exclusively now, pops concerts and you know um, programs where I do talk, and it's I'm really drawn to that. I really like doing it. I like. Uh, interacting with the audience and uh, having a chance to, to speak from the podium and hopefully enhance their experience all that much more. All right. Well, it sounds like it's going to be uh, a couple of amazing shows, and I know people will be very excited to take them in. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a bit of a preview. I really appreciate it. My pleasure.